So what I realized was I need a lot to learn about business, but I can go into an organization and tell you what's wrong. It's almost like an intelligence officer looking at Soviet Union stuff. I know what's wrong here. There's no maintenance. There's no leadership. They don't, they don't have a plan. All the things that I'm doing now at Exec HQ, I learned there because it's so easy to figure out what you have problems. And the biggest problem is leadership. And it's something that isn't taught well, is that it's not taught in the civilian world. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi. I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Baron Lucas. Baron is an executive leader, advisor, coach, and retired Marine Corps colonel. He has 42 years of leadership, management, and mentoring experience. His professional career spans a diverse spectrum of positions, including fighter pilot, instructor, strategist, intelligence officer, professor, commander, business executive, entrepreneur, board member, and advisor. Barron is a principal at Exec HQ, a consulting firm comprised of more than 100 senior executives with extensive C-suite experience. You can learn more about Barron at exechq.com leadership. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Barron. Baron, I'd like to welcome you to the corporate couch today. Jeff, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, we met uh, oh, probably back in June through an introduction from uh, Exec HQ and uh, uh, the CEO founder, Jim Hogat. And uh, he was the first person uh, I was introduced to as part of that team. And uh, yeah, you've probably been the person I've talked to the most, even more than Jim. So thank you <laughs> for coming that. on. <laughs> so you got that going for you. My pleasure. Right. We're going to get into Barron's career, but uh, he spent 27 years as an officer in the uh, U.S. Marines. And I'd like to just thank him for his service. And we're going to get into his career there, but just a phenomenal, um, you know, uh, protecting our freedom. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for paying the bills for 27 years. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, but I'm sure. <laughs> so, Baron, let me t uh, ask you. I, I always uh, start with a kind of a fun question. What's uh, even that people know you fairly well? What one thing would surprise them about you? Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I think I come off as rather intimidating and stern, but that's what I've been told. Uh, this is my arresting bitchy face, you see. So, this is it. I was born this way. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually a real softy at heart. I, I, I love animals. Uh, I, I own a ranch. I got more animals than I know what to do with. I love to cook. I'm actually a red sensitive family kind of guy dressed in a crusty old body. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we don't use the uh, video portion of the uh, podcast yet. But uh, yeah, if you look at Baron, my description would be he's a badass. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, badass. <laughs> now I have to ask you, since you brought it up, what, what's your favorite meal to cook? I make a great Hungarian goulash. I do a mean, a mean smoked salmon with a whiskey honey sauce. Oh, nice. Uh, the whiskey is a key to a lot of things I do, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Outside of uh, food prep. Exactly. Well, you know, you, you always use whiskey in your, in your meals, and sometimes you actually put it in the meals. Um, and then at Christmas, I'm a big baker. I, my, I, I grew up in Germany. Well, I was a child in Germany, living mostly with my grandmother. It was my mother's dad when I was four, so she taught me how to bake when I was a kid, and I still do it today. Some things never leave you. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm just going to stay on this food topic because we get. I know it's the corporate couch, <laughs> but we, you know, it's it, it it work is life, and life is work. There. 
Absolutely. But uh, why is there not, at least in the cities I have lived in, why is there not a lot of German restaurants? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I don't know that German food has proven to be that popular. And, and you're right. I'm thinking about German restaurants in America that I've been to. There have been very few and even fewer that are good. And so you can, you know, you can go to an Italian restaurant on any street corner, particularly in the Northeast, obviously, with uh, Chinese and all that stuff. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Really good German food is really good. Yeah. It just depends on, on where you have it. And if you haven't been to Germany or Austria and having some of that food in a really nice, small country restaurant, you know, you haven't had it yet. So it's difficult to tell. You know, people are, are not uh, as familiar with, with the foods, but they're more familiar with the things that are more popular, pizza, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, sure. Um, now, grow, you grew up in Germany, you said? I moved when I was nine and a half in 1968. Uh, so, no, I didn't grow up there. But I was a child there. And, and okay. my father made me speak German to him the entire time after we moved. So I wouldn't lose the German. And, and it was a very Germanic household, meaning I'm always five or ten minutes early to everything. <laughs> that kind of, you know, Prussian heritage background. Uh, but uh, uh, and I've been to back, back, back to Germany several times. I lived there for three years when I was in the military. I'm still very much German underneath. Nice. Um, Whatever that means to you, by the way. Right. That my definition would be different than yours. But right. <laughs> what What did you like doing as a uh, as a child growing up? What was fun for you? Uh, th- this will make you laugh. I think I loved cowboy movies. Remember Bonanza? Oh yeah, and, the you know, and, and was, Absolutely, and there are a number of other shows in that same era that I know the German title, not the American title. But I grew. I mean, when I was a child, I, there was this fantasy world where I would, you know, strap on a six shooter and go get on a horse. And now that I'm 64, uh, I have a ranch. I've got horses, and I got several six shooters. So I guess uh, all things come to those who wait. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, that John Wayne. Uh... You know, the yeah. John Wayne movies were, you know, big absolutely. Yeah, my my father and I used to used to laugh uh, and joke about it. That I learned English watching John Wayne movies. Yeah, because literally, you know, we both came in. He was uh, God, how old was he? Forty something, and I was nine. And so when he was home and I was not in school, uh, we watched John Wayne movies. He loved them, I loved them, and so there was probably a little bit of influence uh, on on young Baron Lucas back then. And here I am uh, wearing a cowboy hat. So here you go. Yeah, uh, for you uh, younger listeners, uh, just uh, go to Wikipedia and type in John Wayne. Uh, <laughs> the Duke. That's to the, the Duke, yeah. <laughs> and we're not talking about the uh, NFL official football, the Duke. <laughs> I would ask if you have a John Wayne impersonation, but that might be getting too much. That's way too much. No. <laughs> I do have, funny, I have a John Wayne tweet. I'm upstairs in the ranch house and there's a, 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 a suite right across the hallway here that's got a bed, you know, living room, bedroom, bathroom, and it's called the John Wayne suite, but that was my father's favorite movie star. So the whole thing is John Wayne themed inside. Oh, wow. Love there it. There you go. Duke is still alive in my house. That's, I love it. Um, what, what was your aspiration as a kid when, you know, when you, I want to be this when I'm an adult, what was this for you? Uh, right when I moved to the United States, and I didn't speak a word of English. My father and I went to night school in Hackensack, New Jersey. I swear he cheated the entire time, by the way, but we passed. Uh, you know the old, old uh, redneck joke that, uh, you know, your redneck when you and your father walk to school, but you're in the same grade. I lived that dream with my father in Hackensack, New Jersey. Now, right after I got here, we landed on the moon the next year. Remember that? In 1969. And, and this is going to sound really stupid but there was a show called i dream of genie at the same time remember right the yeah. astronaut guys good looking blonde wearing a, a harem outfit it, it fit even when i was nine years old ten years old right so right then and there i my, my first aspiration was to be a, a, a an astronaut and then i started to read more about aviation and and before i got to high school is i wanted to be a fighter pilot in the worst way it was just one of those things you know Everything from uh, the Red Baron to the World War II guys, Pappy Boynton in the Marine Corps, that history just spoke to me. And so I applied to the Air Force and to the Navy. I didn't know what the Marine Corps was other than they looked a lot meaner than I was. And I, I didn't think I, I was cut out to be a mean guy. Um, go figure. 
uh, and so I, I did receive a Navy scholarship. And as soon as I got there, the Navy said, you're too ugly to be a sailor. Go, go join the Marine Corps or words out of And then I, I switched right away. So uh, it, 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 it was, it was a childhood dream come true at 18, which is not normal. And no, most people don't have that, that pleasure of seeing their dreams come true so quickly. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Uh, but you did go to college first before joining the Marine Corps, or is that yeah? Yeah, there, I, I went to college on an ROTC scholarship. Oh, okay. So it was Navy scholarship first, Marine Corps within about a month or two, and, and I never looked back. So you obviously flew, I'm going to assume, from Germany to New Jersey when you immigrated over. Uh, how, what, yeah. Had you been in a plane much as a child? No, no, none. That was the first ride. It was a 707 charter. I think it broke down 10 times between Frankfurt and, and uh, JFK. Oh, I know we landed in Scotland. We landed in Maine for some things. And then we finally ended up landing at JFK. That was my first exposure to, to airplane flying. So you're living your childhood dream. You joined the Marines. Um, what was your kind of career progression like there? And I know you've uh, served in, in active duty, too. So you want to chat, talk about that? Yeah, I was I was commissioned uh, in 1980. I, I graduated in three and a half years. Uh, not that I was an overachiever, but I was dying to get commissioned and, and get out of college. Uh, which is, by the way, for those who are listening who are 18, don't do that. Stay in college for four years and enjoy it. Because after you, you graduate, life gets serious. You have to work for a living at that point. <laughs> exactly. Um, but college was great. Uh, a good good leadership experience. I'm going to talk about that later. But I, I joined the Marine Corps and I had an aviation contract and a regular commission. You can either get a reserve commission or a regular commission out of college. And, and because of my contract at the time, this is 1970, I commissioned in 80. I knew that I was going to be a, a pilot or at least go to flight school and I had a regular commission. And so I, I left there. Every Marine gets to spend six months in Quantico, Virginia, at something called the basic school as a second lieutenant. And it is a leadership academy. You really learn how to be an infantry officer, which is what every Marine Corps is. Every Marine is a rifleman, and every Marine officer is an infantry officer. But I was there to fly airplanes. I, I love TVS. I love being out in, in the woods, getting ticks everywhere, and digging holes to sleep in the night. I enjoyed it. Most of it was I knew that I wouldn't have to do it for the rest of my life because that's hard work. Uh, my son did that for a couple of years as a Marine uh, infantry officer, but I knew that I was leaving there. So it was just a fun and a good experience for, for leadership. Flight school was fun. I did okay in flight school, not great, uh, but I got lucky enough to get jet grades. So I went to jets and then from jets, my dream was the F4 Phantom. Remember that thing? Kind of a gull winged mean looking brick with two engines. There's a lot of funny stories there, but I ended up getting F4. So training the F4, a, a, a short time in the F4 in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is about to get hit by another hurricane. And then I went uh, to an adversary A4 squadron. Back then, we were still fighting the Cold War. So we were doing Soviet airplane, Soviet tactics. And I went to fly the A4 as an adversary. If you remember the movie Top Gun with Tom Cruise, the first one? Yeah. The little tiny airplanes that the Top Gun guys flew those were, were yeah, the MiG A4s. Okay. Right, the MiG simulator. Yeah. And then the, the, the black MiG, the, the black airplanes were actually F5s, also simulators. So I flew A4s for a while. Uh, great experience. Went to Top Gun in 1986, right at the tail end of the movie being made. Some really funny stories there that I can't say on this podcast uh, for a number of reasons, but it was fun. And then uh, after a year of flying 500 hours, which is a lot of hours in the A4 as an adversary, went to the F-18. F-18, F-18 instructor, back to a, what we call a gun squad on a fleet squad on to Desert Storm. About 45 combat missions in Desert Storm, lots of bombs, lots of rockets, lots of uh, bullets out the front end. Uh, and then a series of, of, of other jobs. Uh, uh, air officer with the Marine Regiment, which is normal for the Marine Corps, back as a major to the F-18, command and staff college, my, my first master's degree, which was interesting. And then I went to the what I call the intelligence community, and I worked out of Frankfurt, Germany, did a lot of trips to the former Soviet Union on a diplomatic passport, looking around. And so I can't go to Belarus. I can't go to Russia. Uh, that, that would be a bad thing for me. Uh, spent a year almost in Sarajevo and in the Balkans after the war, uh, doing some work. Uh, left there. 
went to Yuma, Arizona to be a support squadron commander, flew the F-5 again. And then from there went to, uh, was selected for colonel, went to the Air War College, uh, the Air Force's War College in Maxwell, uh, Alabama, and uh, taught there for two years. And then got lucky enough to be picked up for command as a colonel and uh, commanded an aircraft group, multiple squadrons, here in Fort Worth uh, of all places. So I, I full circle to the cowboy story. Uh, literally came back to Fort Worth, took command, and the, the F-18 squadron in my command was a friend of mine from Desert Storm, and he owned a ranch at the mile west of where I live now, which is why I bought this place. So uh, all things come to those who wait, right? I learned yeah, from no, I love it. Living my dream as a father, to now living on my my old man's dream as a, as a cowboy rancher. I, I I know you can't reveal it. Uh, there's some kind of Top Gun uh, story, but uh, did you? I mean, did you get in a fight with Tom Cruise and had decided not to split because you beat him <laughs> no, up? Or... No, I did not. But I, but I think some, some folks wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I'll say. But I, I, I will say this: uh, the, the, the 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 after the movie was done. Top Gun was in a fight with the, the studio because they painted all their flags black. And the, the studio swore that they were, it was a water-based paint, and it wasn't. And so the studio had to paint, had to pay for repainting all the Top Gun flags. probably had 14 of them, in their various adversary colors because black wasn't wasn't a good color for us back then in right. the early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So you leave the uh, Marine Corps after 27 years, and you want to start this civilian professional career, right? So let's say you're a year, you can name the time frame. What, whatever that time frame is, what was the biggest surprise or hardest adjustment to civilian professional life for you? Yeah, that, 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 that's a good question. The frame of the discussion, I, I was, I had aspirations to, to be a general officer and then that got dashed asunder I had a in 1987. I had an experience in F-18 where I went from negative G, which is being light in your seat, almost like at the top of a roller coaster going down, about negative two Gs to a positive ten and a half instantaneously while looking over my shoulder, twisted in the seat. So let's just do simple math. So let's say I weigh 200 pounds. I weigh a good deal more than that, and with the equipment, probably more like 250 times ten and a half. When you're not sitting straight up, it's not good for your neck and back. Right? So I was part of a 2400 milligram Motrin club for about two decades. Wow. And yeah, which doesn't do well from your stomach. And so in 2007, early, I had a similar episode where I lost control of my hands. My, my, my hands were numb, flying in the airplane, doing this almost the same kind of a thing. And uh, my flight surgeon uh, gave me a double secret probation MRI right, so that it wouldn't results wouldn't be known until I, I said, okay. And he came into my office and said, hey, Skipper, uh, you can either fly or you can carry grandkids. You can't do both. And I, you know, I, looked, I talked to him a little about the detail and said, no, no, no kidding. If you don't watch it, you're going to be crippled. So I, I, I threw in the house, so I was speaking with him, and we put him for retirement uh, earlier than I intended to. So the good news was, for those two years in, in, in Fort Worth, I was a senior Marine in Texas, which doesn't mean much other than it's still a line on my resume, but it, it allowed me to do a lot of public speaking. And so I, I, was, I got into an investment bank, and the, the, the shock was, and it's funny, one day I'm, I am a senior colonel of Marines with, with a car and a driver. And a month later, I'm picking up somebody at the airport in my own car because I am the car on the driver. <laughs> right. right. It's quite the change. It's quite the change. And then the other, the other thing is, and, and this is this is where self-awareness becomes so important as a leader. I thought I was self-aware, but I also thought, well, damn it, I was a Colonel Marine. Now, to be honest, that may not mean much, but there aren't very many of those. And very few of those become commanders. So I was in a pretty rarefied world. And I thought I could do just about anything. And, and, and to be honest with you, Jeff, I didn't know Jack about business. I knew about leadership and I knew about organizational health. And so I could, I could go into any organization and still can. And within about two hours, three hours, I can tell you most of the things that are wrong just by walking around because they're obvious. Right. But I didn't know anything about investment banking. I didn't know anything about finance. So 
I, I was always in the corner with a dunce hat on, uh, trying to learn and in a world that, that didn't teach. There was no training. There was, you know, you, it, it's like the old ninja plans in Japan that put the babies in, in, a, in a pond. If the baby comes up and swims, they're good. If not, who cares? so that was a tough awakening and, and the fact that I needed to reinvent who I was and, and relearn things I've always been a lifetime learner and a lifetime teacher but that was a shock to my system on how ill prepared I was for that specific world now someplace else I probably would have been an easier fit the good news though is that it, it took me out of my comfort zone it put me in a in a pressure cooker, and there's only two ways to really get crushed or, or you succeed in some capacity. And I, I would like to think that I succeeded them. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Did you? What was your kind of process to learn the investment banking industry? Observation, questions, study. I mean, I, I took the series seven's exam, and I remember the rest of the crew being upset because I I went off base. That had in, in, in the in the firm. And then just reading and observing and understanding. And, and, and to my fortune, I ended up doing consulting for them. They had a portfolio company that, that was kind of in trouble. And so I did some consulting, looking around and, and seeing what the problems were. And, and so what I realized was, okay, uh, I, need, I have a lot to learn about business, but I, I can go into an organization and tell you what's wrong. You know, and, and almost almost like an intelligence officer looking at, at Soviet Union stuff. Right? You go, okay, I know what's wrong here. There's no maintenance. There's no leadership. They don't, they don't have a plan. All the things that I'm doing now at ExecHQ, particularly for ExecHQ multiple uh, pre-transaction service, uh, I learned there because it's so easy to figure out where you have problems. And the biggest problem is leadership really understanding what it is and and it's something that isn't taught well and this is this is going to be going to probably piss some people off out there is that it's not taught in, in a civilian world not really right I, and 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 what what is amazing to me is that I, i've I read a lot of civilian books on leadership and i've talked to a lot of civilian professors about leadership and almost all of them haven't read anything uh even some of the guys who have the biggest leadership books i won't mention any names but haven't let anything. And so one of the things is, is uh, looking at an organization and understanding what, what the impact is of poor leadership and or poor management. And as a good leader, you have to do both and figure out how to fix that. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I never really had that take on leadership because I, it is amazing how many people get promoted. They were so good as an individual contributor, and then they just get thrown to the wolves. I have a, a very close friend, started a new job, and it's a very big company, probably Fortune, uh, you know, 50. Uh, and I'm amazed at the leadership, lack of, you know, just micromanaging people. And I, mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, I feel like it's the, 80s 90s you know <laughs> you know in terms of you know that type of leadership style and you know i've talked to several guests uh, on this topic and you know and and things have to change but you know the foundation doesn't have to change but you know like steve jobs today would probably have a hard time running apple because of the way he led but that uh, you know that doesn't mean he was a bad leader he was just he was right for his time but i think it's because of you're not getting coached and, you know, just because you're a visionary doesn't mean you can, you know, lead people. I mean, they obviously did great things for Apple, but he failed. They fired him the first right. time. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the and I don't, I, and again, I, I'm, I'm sure I know there are great civilian leaders and all of them have two things in common. I think, I think there, there's a, there's a, a kernel of leadership. And I don't mean the rank, a kernel nugget of leadership that you're given uh, by, by birth and circumstance and, and the nurturing of parents and, and things like watching John Wayne movies. And then there is a whole bunch of learning that has to take place. Right? And all of that has to be underpinned by a really strong sense of who you are as a person, by seeing yourself as a leader, by, by emulating leadership 
examples. And then by having a set of core values, you know, way back when, before we had core values, we had core values, but we didn't call them that. It's just a, a principle of how you live. And I think a lot of those, the folks that are not good leaders just got into a position, whether they have the kernel or whether they have the, the training or even the, the ethos and, 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 and values to, to, do be, to be a leader are thrown into positions where they can't really perform well, but it is there and succeed despite themselves. So you obviously go through 27 years in the Marine Corps where, you know, they're, that's what they do. They, they develop leaders, right? So you learned a ton from the Marine Corps, but what, outside of the, your Marine Corps experience, what, what guided you the most in terms of your leadership journey and your learning? Yeah, two things. One, a lot of learning, a lot of, lot of reading, uh, everything, history. Uh, you can learn a lot from historical figures. One of my favorite, uh, is certainly, you know, there are military folks out there that, that are really, really good. Churchill is a great example of leadership on, under stress. And then there, there is the thing that I call faking it until you make it. And that is picking an example for yourself of what you want to be when you grow up. And I'm still, by the way, not growing up yet, so I still have a ways to go. But figuring out what the example is, you know, and it could be a fictitious character. It could be, it could be a historical character. But who do you, who's your example of who great leaders? And it could be people that you work with and work for. I have lots of those. You know, I was taught a long time ago to, to have a, a leadership notebook. You know, it's basically one of these things like I have here. And it, it, all the good examples and bad examples of leadership are documented. Uh, and learning from bad leaders is just as good as learning from good leaders. Uh, you learn what not to do and then you learn what to do. And if you're underpinned with some characteristics, uh, then I think you can do it. And so that's the military part. The other part of it is leadership is leadership. Good leadership or even great leadership is the same. I don't care what age. I don't believe on this generational change. No, I, I really don't. I, I, I've led young Marines for 27 years and now I've led uh, several companies with, with young and old in between and everybody needs the same kind of leadership. They need a leadership that is based on character, on competence and on composure and a caring for people that you lead, right? One of the things that the Marine Corps says, and I believe in it, it's, it's mission first, but people always. Meaning, you know, unfortunately in the military, sometimes you, you have to tell people to do something to make it kill. And, and that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. And in business, you still have to make really tough decisions. But the mission comes first. If, if it doesn't, then why do it? Why, why, why be in business? Why be in the military? But in order to accomplish that mission, you have to take care of your people. There has to be a level of humanity and empathy and caring, not carrying them, there's a difference, not carrying their people, but caring for them and their families and their future. And the best leaders I've ever seen were teachers, mentors, and coaches rolled up in whatever position to hell. Right? Because your number one rule, one number one, uh, I think, responsibility as a leader is developing other leaders. Right? And, and that is not often done in the business world. Not in, at a formal level, nor even at an informal level. And there's lots of coaching programs out there, and, and I've seen it done poorly, I've seen it done pretty well, but the deliberateness of that has to come from, from the top, and it has to be forced downhill. And, and the senior person, and now that I am, no kidding, almost a senior citizen, I am the senior person, and, and it has to come from, from that individual, CEO or commander in the military, and force that down people's throat, where, where that if you're a leader, if you are, if, if your title, if your position has a leadership nuance to it, well, then you better be a teacher and a coach and a mentor and help the other folks out. If you can't do that, then you don't belong in leadership. You can be a manager. People manage things and programs. Leaders lead people, and there's a whole big difference. A great leader, I think, does both. Right? It's the old Drucker thing. Right? You, you do the you do the right thing, or you do things right, and you do the right thing. Two different concepts, but great leaders do both. Yeah, no, I totally agree. What, um, like, in companies you've led, 
uh, after the Marines, would, did you, what was your process uh, or, or things that you implemented to develop your leadership uh, throughout the company? Uh, a number of things. First thing is, is coaching and mentoring of subordinate leaders and literally taking them under your wing and, and figuring out what they need. What, you know, the first thing I ask anybody, okay, Tim, so, you know, Jeff, you work for me, right? Jeff, you're, you're, you're not, I've old you, you're actually 25 or 30. I go, hey, Jeff, uh, tell me what you want to do when you're 40 or 45. What's your five-year plan? And what I normally hear is even today, what do you mean? Haven't you thought about what you want to do when you grow up? No. Do you have a five-year plan? No. Then you develop that for your people, whether it's education, whether it's financial, whether it's, you know, what do you, do you want to have my job someday? You know, those kind of things. That's, that, that's one thing. The second thing is holding people accountable. And I'll give you a quick war story. Uh, I was I was uh, chief operating officer for a company that uh, was a portfolio company of the of an investment bank that I started with when I left the Marine Corps. And we had a theft in a location with like thirty locations, about three hundred fifty employees, and it was uh, out in, in the west someplace. And the a lead sales guy and the store manager were taking products from the store, high value products, multiple thousands of dollars products, and selling them black on the, on the black market. And I went in with, with the HR director and because I used to do uh, JAG investigation, Judge Advocate Corps investigations in the military, all officers do. I went through the investigative process and it didn't take very long for me to call the police, have them come by and, and, and this sales guy and the, the manager were not only released, but also arrested the same day. And while I have a pretty good sense of humor and I've gotten a lot more patient than I was when I was in my thirties, if you irritate me and frankly, if you piss me off and that pisses me off, uh, things are not going to go well for you. And so after I, I got my, my butt pressure down to normal, I wrote core values and a, and a code, of, code of conduct for the company. Very military-like. You know, in the Navy, it's honor, coach, commitment. I, I think here with honor, commitment, and service or something, I, I, I changed a little bit. The bottom line is that became our mantra. Now, I'm not a big fan of core values just for core values sake, but when you have an example and then you set the, set the, the, the standards and you hold people accountable, I believe you create a self-cleansing organization. And I know that I, I did it as Lieutenant Colonel Commander Yuma where I had a really bad situation with 900 Marines and sailors that were all non-deployable crooks, not all of them, but a lot of them were. And I put a lot of kids in jail because they need to be in jail. And I had a death threat on me and my family. I and mean, then you, you can't make this stuff up. Right? It's no. serious stuff. Holding them accountable. And what happens over a period of time, I, I know me think it takes a year to 18 months. You hold the line on whatever it is. And for me, it's you don't cheat, you don't steal, do anything harassment-wise, no sexual harassment, none of that, no drugs. If I see it once, if I hear it once, it's gone that day. End of story. There is no more discussion. It's gone. If I'm leading the organization, you're toast. And if it's criminal, I'm going after you. And then I'm going to set that standard. And what happens over time is that the people that are around the company that think along those lines stay. And they perform really well. And then when somebody comes in that is a bad apple, they get, they, they get pushed out because they get uncomfortable with being held accountable. And then they leave by themselves or they get forced out by their peers. And all of a sudden, you have a self-punching yeah. That is magic, but it's only magic if you actually do it and have the, frankly, the guts to look at somebody and say, hey, Billy Bob, you're gone. And guess what? This is what we saw. Here's the videotape. And you know the rest of the story. Most people turn a blind eye. If you do that, you, you're not part of the solution anymore. You're part of the problem. And as a leader, you just fail. You're done. Yeah, because people know what's going on, and they're they're saying, "Why is this person still here?" Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent. Culture has to start at the top. I mean, you can create many cultures within a company, and obviously, we're talking about companies of certain sizes. But really, it starts at the top, at the CEO level, right? And what and. I'm just amazed at like every company should be on the best companies to work for list, right? I mean, you that would be your desire. You want to create an Absolutely. environment, a community of 
people at your company where they can create an environment where they can work and thrive, right? But why, what's lacking at the, at the senior leadership and I'll say the CEO level where companies with great cultures are in the minority? Yeah, good, good, good point. Uh, there's a book called The Substance of Leadership uh, written by a guy named David Robinson. His call sign is Crusoe and he's now a retired colonel. He's a couple of years, like several years younger than I am. He joined my F-18 squadron in California right after we got back from Desert Storm as a young lieutenant. He, and he was brilliant as a lieutenant. There were very few brilliant lieutenants, but most, most of them are devil and dirt. He was not. And he ended up uh, having a successful medical career. He was the executive officer at Top Gun. Uh, one, in fact, he is still, in, in my opinion, the best F-18 driver the Marine Corps has ever had. He's an amazing guy. Now, he, he's been consulting since he retired. I think he lives in Beaufort, South Carolina, but he wrote this book, Substance of Leadership. And this construct it comes from that book. And when I read it two years ago, I think when it, when it came out, I was slow with the simplicity. So what does it take to be a great leader? And, and it's what I mentioned earlier, but it's going in passing. And, and picture an equilateral triangle. The top of the triangle, the apex, is character. And so that's honor, courage, commitment, certainly. Ethical underpinnings. Humanity, humility self-awareness, honesty, integrity, all those things, but that, it has to be based on a basic principle of good instead of either nothing or bad. And good character, character that, ha that has the, the moral courage, you know, there's two courages, right? There's physical courage, picture gunfire, you charging a hill, and there's moral courage where you do the right things even when nobody's looking. You know, and and that, there's a whole two-hour discussion about what that means. Mm -hmm. But if, if a leader doesn't have that, they've already failed, and the organization will fail. I'll give you an example. Was Adolf Hitler a good leader? He was an effective leader for a while, but he was evil. He had no character. You know, same with, frankly, with Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Uh, I know too much about him from, from visits to, to his country. That guy is a crook. He is a no-kidding evil dude. Now, is he an effective leader? Well, we can question it, but he's been in power for 20 years. He's done something okay. But they lack character. And, and those those situations, the organization will always perish because the leader is crooked. The next thing on the corner is confidence. And that's that manager and leader together, you know, doing things right and doing the right things together. That means you have to know what the hell you're doing. And you have to know enough to know when you don't know. For example, Barron... While I was pretty good at math in college, I don't do finance. I can read a PL, I can read the balance book. But if I go, go to a company as a consultant, which I'm doing now, obviously, I always look for a CFO to help me out. I'm not competent in that area, but I have, I have my own confidence. And then lastly is composure. I have seen way too many senior leaders lose their cool, become loud, abusive, even physical at work, or get so depressed or get overly overjoyed about something that isn't really that important or buckle under stress. If you can't stay cool under, under pressure, you don't belong in leadership position. You just don't. Nobody wants to see the leader crumble or lose their cool, right? So those three need to be on top. And if you don't have all three, uh, you're going to be that guy in a Fortune 100 company or less that is struggling because he doesn't have or she doesn't have. And then it's the understanding as a senior leader, you have two jobs and really it's two jobs. One is build a vision for the company. People come to work for you because of their vision. And that isn't just in five years, you want to have $1 billion and blah, 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 be in this line of business. I'm talking about the vision for what we're trying to do, the, the bigger picture. And that includes the culture for the company. And having a sense of belonging. I mean, and, and this is another one of those winkle lessons. The biggest PR machine when I was in, in my younger days was the winkle because you could recognize, right? I mean, you see the eagle go anchor behind me. You saw the, the billboards, the guys fighting the dragon with the sword. You saw all the commercials. You knew what a Marine was and you knew what that belonged to and you knew what they stood for right from the very get -go. Southwest Airlines used to have that same kind of feel. They're, they've gotten a little squishy, but that happens over time if you're not watching. Set the vision. And then set the culture. And the culture better match the vision. And that's where people fail, not recognizing that at the top, 
at the CEO level, at the chairman level, at the owner level, that's your responsibility. And if you can't do that, again, you're in the wrong place. I'm an introvert. I am a closet introvert. I find strength and power by being by myself or with my wife or with my animals. It's just a fact. Now, I also, I also like helping people, though. So this is, is fun for me. But public speaking is a slog. Being on, on stage, which, which where you always are as a leader, is, is a little bit of, of a stress position for me. But you've got to get out there and communicate. And so, you know, vision, culture, the triad of, of character, competence, and composure. And then lastly, is you've got to be able to communicate and get people to follow you by you setting the vision and then acting in accordance with that vision and that culture. But here's what happened. Uh, you set a core value, you write the mission, vision, and, and statements, and, and all that stuff, and then you don't live by it. And you know this as well as I do. If you're in a C-level position in any company, I don't care if it's a $100 million or $10 million mom and pop shop or a multi-billion dollar multi-nation corporation, you're in a, in a glass house the entire time. And everything you do is observed by everybody. So if you're a shyster or if you're a crook or if you've got ethical issues, but you preach from the pulpit about our culture and, and, and our goodness and then act not according, you're already done. And, and the culture is going to fail. The company is going to fail because of it. Yeah, I I worked at a small company. There was probably you know less than forty people at at the headquarters location. We had uh, people out in the field, but the culture was a little dysfunctional um, at the headquarters location. And literally in our break room, which was very small, where the coffee was, you know, on the bulletin board had a quote from Peter Drucker. It's one of my favorite quotes. It says. You know, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. For breakfast, exactly. I used to laugh every time I walk in, get coffee, and I I'd laugh. I'm like, who who really put this up here? Like it it's like they have no clue. In this place, <laughs> well, it is it's funny because you know we try to I this I was in this sales and marketing organization, and if you ask any sales rep out in the field uh, that you know would occasionally come into the headquarters location about you know they would say oh this is the best company i ever worked for because we i we made our own culture and isolated them from the uh kind of the shit i guess that, right. <laughs> that we were right. dealing with which you should do right you don't you want them to have an environment where they can do their best work and have fun and you know so it, it was successful but just at the corporate office it was just like i literally every day i would look i'm like so interesting. And, and, and to, to your point, Jeff, that's a great point. It's something that needs to be recognized. Leadership is not a position. Leadership is an action and an attitude and a willingness to put yourself out there. And, I, and to your point, I, I was in, in an F-18 squadron where the, the commanding officer was a complete dirtbag and not somebody that, that you would want to have a beer with, not somebody that you want to introduce your wife to, but just, just it was toxic. But we had a core of, of captains uh, in, in the in the squad, and they were all relatively senior, experienced captains. A lot of flight time, and we ran the squad. We ran the squad around the commander because we set the culture. We were the culture. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're in a toxic environment at work, you've got, and you're not at, in a C-suite, and you've got two choices. You can either walk, well, three choices. I guess you can walk. You can sit there and take it. Or you can be the leader and ensure that your peer group is taken care of and can, can work and be successful despite the fact that leaders suck. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's just, it amazes me. I, I love the talk corporate culture and, and making a great one. It just amazes me on the lack of you know really great companies to work for. I, and I, I just think it's sad for, you know, that that's the time period we live in. and there, there are great companies right and but it's just absolutely they're the minority unfortunately yep <laughs> so yeah uh what was your uh, most fun job after after the marine corps what what did you enjoy doing out of all because you did a, you did many different things many different things lots of uh president and ceo positions all that you know i, I like being in charge and and, and that's 
that, that that's an ego speaking still i think uh i, I like being the ceo because i like the vision and culture thing i, I yeah. mean i i, I won't say i was born to it but certainly uh I, i've got a long apprenticeship at, at being that guy but what i really like doing and i like to doing it in the military and I like doing it now, which is why I'm, I'm with Exec HQ, is I like teaching and I like coaching. I love seeing people flourish with a little bit of help, mm-hmm. a little bit of leadership, a little bit of coaching. And that's why, you know, one of the things that, that, that I do for Exec HQ is that the guy helped run the coaching program. And now I, I, I kind of came up with another title, we talked about it, the, the, the chief of staff or hire kind of deal, where and I'm doing it for, for a couple of companies, where I do the coaching and I, I help them form the culture and the leadership culture if they can't see it themselves. And I do planning and execution for them. I do whatever. But that to me is more like I'm the gray beard. You know, I am, I am uh, Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings teaching the <laughs> hobbits, right? I mean, it, it, it but that sounds stupid, but that's kind of, I mean, and, and I've had a lifetime of experience and I can go, okay, look, here's what you really got to think about. And it sticks because I'm gray and I'm and, and I'm old and and people tend to listen to that, uh, and that's what I enjoy. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I, if I can't be in charge, which I don't think I really wanted that responsibility anymore, because I like my free time. But boy, I love teaching and I love helping people succeed. Yeah, I love your concept of this chief of staff. Now, you know, before you and I uh, chatted about it. Uh, during several discussions we've had, I, you know, I always thought of that role as kind of the, um, a place where it was almost a learning role to, to give somebody with very high potential and leadership exposure at the executive level, multiple functions, but, you know, but that person didn't have a, a ton of experience. They're obviously a high potential, you know, your, your peers with the COO, the, the CFO, the CMO, CRO, CIO, right. whatever C, C uh, uh, acronym we could throw out there. But you're, you kind of take it as, you know, like I'm, I've done all these things. I have 42 years of leadership experience. There's probably almost nothing I haven't seen before. Let me help you navigate this across functional areas and culture and help you you know, raise your game based on Absolutely. my experience. Yeah. So I, I, I really, yeah. I love that concept. I talked to one guy that, that was going to join us at HQ and he mentioned it. And I thought about what I do when I went with the client. It occurred to me that, that that's what I do. I mean, it doesn't really matter what the client is. I end up doing that just out of the experience set. And it works. I think a lot of companies need that. And, it, and it's like having a coach and a mentor officially for the entire company that's one and then two there are certain things that you and i and others in exec hq can teach those guys and that and for number thing is that vision and culture discussion right this is but this is your job dude figure it out or lady figure it out and then it's also and this goes outside of the leadership deal but not really it's it's in it, it's in the confidence realm of leadership that is learning how to plan and execute well I have talked to Harvard professors. I've talked to professors uh, at Tulane and a number of MBA programs and their vision or their version of strategy teaching is so ridiculously stupid. I'm, I'm sorry to say, it, but it's dumb. It has nothing to do with the strategy. Strategy is figuring out how to use your, your, your available resources to accomplish the mission. That's strategy in a nutshell. 99% of people out there don't know how to do it well. So you tie that into the chief of staff position, and now you're not only mentoring and coaching, you teach them how to plan and execute, and before long, you become irrelevant. That's, and the sad news is that within 18 to 24 months, I work myself out of a job. And if I don't, then I'm doing it wrong, because again, it's about developing the next leader. Right. And you hope that you can, you can impart some of the knowledge, if not wisdom, and, and get them on the right track. Now, on your coaching, uh, is it just kind of the, the the barren, you know, the you know the, what you've learned in the past, or do you use a certain methodology? To, you know, there's so many assessments people use today. I'm just wondering yeah. what kind yeah. of your process yeah. is. No, I, you know, 
Have you called the John Boggs yet? The, the other Marine Colonel at Exec HQ. Uh, I just, I've been in like two meetings with John. That's about enough. Yeah, John's a great guy. He's an infantry uh, officer, taught at the, I think it was the National War College. And then he went to George Mason and for coaching. And he, he coaches a lot of general officers or flag officers in the military, a lot of senior civilian leaders in politics and in, in, in business. And John learned coaching not only from his 30 years in Minko, but also from, from his college degree. And so he is probably, I'm sure he's a better coach than I am in terms of, in terms of process, but I, I coach from experience and I coach from having spent now, whatever it is now, 40 plus years in coaching. I mean, when, when, when you're a pilot, you teach other pilots, you coach other pilots how to fly the airplane. That's what you do 99% of the time. The one percent we actually getting shot at and dropping bombs is, is a minority, right? The rest of the time you're training. And then in a Marine Corps, if you're a pilot, you also have a ground job in maintenance or in operations or in logistics or wherever. And you have troops, junior enlisted Marines that work for you. And it isn't giving orders. I mean, that's that's the stereotypical military leadership example. But you give orders, but that, that's that's a rarity. What you do is you help them, you coach them, and, and you develop them as Marines or as leaders. And the same holds true in business. So all of that allows the coaching to take place. And what I do is, is, is and I don't know if the process, there's something that, that, that I've developed over the years. I ask them some very simple questions. What do you want to do when you grow up? And I don't mean that in age. I mean that in you're established, you've got a family. What's your life goal? And then plan backwards. Everything is, is backwards planning in the military, and it needs to be the same way from business and life. So if, if, if at 55, you want to retire with $5 million and a nice house, and you're married and have two kids, if that's the vision for your life, then plan backwards, and now you're 30. How do you get there? And what do you need to do to develop yourself as a, as a human being? That's the first step. And then uh, being a little bit of planning execution, because most of them, all of them are business leaders, and then finally, it's you step back as a coach and you become a coach. You let them execute. And then let's say it's you, Jeff, and you're 30 years younger and you come back and go, Baron, I got this problem, but there's one guy and he's a friend of mine, but he's not performing. What do I do? And I go, Jeff, well, tell me about this guy. And did you set the expectation? Well, no, not really. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about that. Let's, let's, Set the expectations of what that job is, and then has he or she the training and the experience to get the job done, right? And then you, okay, well, and then you let them, as a coach, come to the right conclusions. And if they don't, you give them a nudge, a little rudder input now and then, but you let them. So my program is nine months long minimum. That's the commitment. It's heavy up front, and then it kind of, I won't say it peters out, but it gets less and less intense, less and less frequent. Because in the first, I need to teach them what they don't know. I do a little bit of an assessment on my own, what, what I think they know. And then I, I develop them as best I can, and then I let them execute, and then they come to me with problems, and we, we sort it out, but I let them come to the conclusions. That's what I coach them. I mean, I can teach all day, and that's helpful, but it doesn't help the development of, of the executive after nine months. Some people stay longer, some people drop off at nine months, but in that nine month window, I have the time frame to make an impact. And then for me, it, it's so gratifying. You, 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 you've been there as well. Somebody you, you coached, whether it's, it's as an official executive coach for hire, or they work for you someplace else, and you help them along, and then 10 years later, they call you again and, and ask advice or, or thank you or whatever. What a great feeling that is. Right? I mean, we all want to, want to be appreciated, but what a great feeling it is that uh, whatever you did, whatever nugget you imparted, helped them become something else, something greater. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, there's two groups I'd love to help during uh, leadership advice from great people like you, Baron. Uh, first group is a recent college graduate as they're trying to get uh, their career started. And I think based on my experience of uh, uh, teaching at the uh, University of Kansas and just go, uh, my uh, adult children's friends and, and themselves, most, I would say you're in the minority, you knew you wanted to be a fighter pilot. But I would say the vast majority do not. What advice would you give them as right. they begin their career journey? 
You know, what, what I've done with a lot of folks is, is, is do a little self-awareness evaluation, right? And it doesn't matter if, if they're just at a college, although that population needs guidance, needs a little bit of help. And I would say, okay, Jeff, let's say you're 20 years old, you know, you're junior in college. And I would go, okay, tell me who your heroes are. Who are your role models? Who do you pattern yourself after? If they're married, I would ask them to, to talk to their, their spouse uh, and say, ask your wife or your husband what, what you remind them of in terms of a, of a hero figure or any kind of figure. Right? And then come back to me. And then the answer there gives me an indication of, of, of their personality. Was it, was it, if they see themselves as the, the stable boy in the mansion uh, shoving horse manure. Now, okay, that's that's one side of an of equation. If they just see themselves as uh, uh, the greatest World War II fighter race, well, that gives me a whole lot of ego thing. And then you can judge where they are. And sometimes the people that don't see themselves as particularly a, a, a capable or don't have a great sense of self value can be coached up. Rarely can it be coached to the highest level. So I think you need to have that sense of self-awareness and self-value and see yourself as something beyond what you are now. To, to have that, the gumption and the guts and the drive and the ego to be a CEO or be whatever. Right. Recognize that. Recognize, and give you a perfect example. I had a guy that worked for me back in, in Marine Corps. He was a good guy, a good pilot. I sent him to the top gun. I sent him to the Marine Corps weapons school. He, he became the pilot training officer for the squadron talented guy and, and i remember going in to the ready room as a major and he was a, a mid-range captain and and i had a difficult day and, and you could tell i'm a difficult day my, my, my eyes turned red and i saw going fangs i'm not a happy camper and we're talking about about working he goes you know baron uh, i know what you want to be you want to be a squadron commander and, and and go higher i don't want to work as hard as you do ding 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 right self-awareness bell now that guy became a, an airline pilot and he's got a great life and he lives someplace in the northwest and he's doing fine but having that awareness is, is critical right? if you're going to do x you want to be the best of the best according to the top online or be the ceo of a fortune 100 company there's a price to pay for that there are amazing rewards but there's a price to pay and so for the young 18 20 year old for, for jeff the younger tell me who you are Tell me who you aspire to be, and then let me ask you a question. Are you willing to pay the price? One more example. I, I was a colonel at the Air War College. I was a senior Marine for the Air Force at, at the educational deal. And once a month, I would go talk to the brand new second lieutenants in the Air Force. You know, And I would always go in a flight suit and I'd put my feet up on the desk and say, okay, tell me about your, what you got to tell. And there was a former enlisted guy in there who said, you know, I, I gave him a little bit of pitch on life as a senior officer. He goes, you know, Colonel, this is all great, but I want to spend time with my kids and I don't want to miss a softball game. I don't want to miss a baseball game. Blah, blah, blah. blah. And frankly, it was a lot of whining. And I went, okay, time out. And that's perfectly fine, but, but then you, you don't belong in uniform. All right? You right. don't. I mean, I, I gave him the, the, the sad news. In my son's 18 years at home, I was gone over nine years. Nine. Yeah. I rarely saw any game. I did parenting by when we first got laptops, I did parenting my email by bolding and capitalizing my yelling at him. <laughs> uh, seriously. And, but that's the price you got to pay. So if, right. if you're not willing to put in the work, well, then don't, don't, don't play the game. Right. And likewise, the, 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 the lesson for that young man was, I said, look, would you rather your son remember you at the baseball games? Or would you rather your son remember you as somebody who served their country and had a sense of duty to what they were doing? And that was kind of shaming him, and I, and I almost felt bad for it. But then again, I didn't. It's the lesson to everybody is, if you want to succeed, and I don't care if it's the military or business or politics or whatever you're going to do, there's a price to pay. And so figure out what price you're willing to pay and that's how high you're going to get. Right. As long as you're diligent and, 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 and develop yourself and learn and, and apply yourself. And I don't care what generation it is. I mean, there's a lot of talk about this generation, this, that, hey, you know what? It's all BS. Every human being I've ever met 
uh, responds favorably to correct leadership and guidance. And if they don't, then they're morally so warped that nothing can help them. Right. You know, after you start a professional career, at some point for uh, many of them, they get the team leadership role. So now they have people reporting to them. So while we talked, everybody can be a leader, but now you're responsible for somebody from a org chart, HR perspective, you know, performance reviews, leadership development, those type of things. What, what advice do you have to that group to improve their leadership capabilities? Leading peers is the hardest thing you can probably ever do. And you can leave without having a title or position. But if you have a title and position, then you got to be really careful about your relationship with your near peers who are actually now your subordinates. Friendly is good. Being close friends is difficult and can, can lead to poor decision-making on both parties. That's the first thing. Second thing is know what you know and try to realize what you don't know and don't try to know everything. Uh, good leaders surround themselves with the smarter people. So if you're in that position, make sure you ask their advice. Don't give them your orders. Mm-hmm. Let them help you. The smartest leaders I know are, are fundamentally lazy. They know how to give direction, sit back and let the other people do, do the work and praise them for doing well and take responsibility for things when they go wrong. That's a big statement right there. Right. So if you're leading near peers, lead by example. Leave with empathy and humility and humanity and recognize that you have a responsibility to the mission first and people always. You're there to do a job. Do the buddy job and take care of your people and then hold them accountable. That's the other thing. It's tough to hold accountable people that did two days ago were, were your peers. Right. Well, now you got to. And hopefully you did it before to begin with in that self-cleansing culture that I talked about earlier. But now you are the boss, at least one level of supervision above, hold them accountable. But if you do that, here's a trap. Make bloody damn sure you hold yourself accountable first. Yeah. Did I give them the expectations? Did I give them the training? Was it reasonable? You know, and if you can say yes, 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 then they're at fault, not you. Fix it. Yeah. No, that's great advice. Uh, Baron, thank you so much for coming on the corporate couch today. It's been a pleasure. Your, your career is fantastic. And I'm, I'm honored to uh, know you and uh, work with you. Uh, at Thanks, Jeff. That was two ways. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Joe, I have to say, I was excited about meeting Baron, but really to interview somebody that born in Germany and learns English in Jersey watching John Wayne movies is mm-hmm. just an incredible experience for me. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I will say, you know, this is my take on the episode. I mean, I think he gave a mini course in leadership during yeah. the, during the conversation. He's that, he's that smart. And he, you know, Bar- Baron Lucas, you know, <laughs> 30-year Marine Corps, retired uh, as a colonel, you know, a 1,500-person battalion of fighter pilots. Like, the guy comes in, you know, obviously we don't do the video of the podcast, but he's he looks imposing on Zoom. He's probably about 6'4", but mm-hmm. comes off as a badass. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he, I even got him to admit he's a little bit of a teddy bear, you know. Uh, yeah, and so, he, he even said he's a closet introvert. I wrote that down. Yeah, closet introvert, which I know you you bond with, but I mean, just just a great story, and I don't know, I just really impressive in terms of his leadership. And one one thing he said about it too, he said, you know, he said people, no matter what, you know, if you're a millennial, or baby boomer, or a Gen X, whatever, he goes, he believes, and I thought this was an interesting take that leadership is leadership, and he basically talked about you need to have character, competence, composure. And, and really have the caring and empathy factor. So I thought it was a really, because he said, I, you know, I ran, you know, I was in charge of people 22 to, you know, 60, you know, and so I, I just thought it was an interesting take. What was your uh, take? With and lead, leadership is kind of the secret sauce that that fixes everything. And, and that goes along real well with the observation that I have. What my experience with veterans is that the military seems to um, prepare you 
for just about anything that life has. And that's why there are so many veterans that have, I mean, if you look at, look at his uh, LinkedIn resume. So he was in the military and then he was the president of a company and then a CEO of a company on the board of a company and the president of another company and, and on and on. It reminds me a lot of um, one person I worked with very early in my business career and I won't mention his name because I'm not going to out him, but, but that he was a retired military. And then, um, and then when I met him, he was the warehouse manager of the company that we worked for. And I remember thinking at the time as a young, stupid 25-year-old that I didn't know anything about leadership or anything. I thought, what is it about the military that prepares you to be a warehouse manager and, and managing all these people that are doing picking and inventory control and shipping and that kind of stuff because he was in charge literally of, of everything in the warehouse. And I had to finally come to the conclusion after meeting him and a few other military people that the military prepares you for literally anything. And I think that's an interesting aspect. Now, on the other hand though, that I think this is interesting and I don't have a good, good answer for this, is that military people at the same time, higher than average percentage of them suffer from suicide from mental illness and from homelessness. And so it's, it's almost like the military takes whatever is inside of you and just tends to multiply it, whatever it is, whether it's a good trade or a bad trade or an uh, undesirable trade or something like that. But I think that's interesting that, that military people can tend, tend to go in, in either direction, but by a, a great margin that they will tend to be much more successful than the average. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, just phenomenal. And uh, I'm doing some uh, consulting work with Baron right now. I just is just a great person. So um, what leadership wisdom would you want to uh, give the audience today? We are going Joe? to go to that great philosopher named Creed Bratton, who one time said, I've been involved in a number of cults both a leader and a follower. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.